You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. On today's episode of the Talking Taiwan podcast, my guest is Garrett Vanderwees. Garrett is the former editor of the Taiwan Communique, a publication that was dedicated to the human rights and democracy of Taiwan. He has also worked for FAPA as a senior policy advisor and currently teaches the history of Taiwan at George Mason University. He's also a former Dutch diplomat. I've invited Garrett as a guest here today to share some of his perspectives on the recent presidential election in Taiwan. Welcome to the podcast, Garrett. Thank you very much, Felicia. Really uh, pleased to be uh, on your program. Um, so on your questions, I think it's good to... Uh, to look back uh, perhaps one year ago after the November 2018 elections when Tsai Ing-wen was not in a very good uh, position, uh, the 2018 elections had been pretty disastrous for the DPP. But after that, she was able to regroup and reorganize the DPP. So in the first part of 2019, she started already to make a comeback in, in a sense, winning back uh, many of the constituencies that had drifted away for some reason or another. And uh, that's resulted in uh, May, June 2019 in her being able to uh, beat back the challenge by uh, Lai Chinde, the former prime minister, who had challenged her in the DPP primaries. Um, he had been part of the group that wanted her to go farther and faster in the direction of uh, democratization and, in a sense, eventually independence. But she felt that a more uh, gradual approach would be better. And in a sense, uh, she did win out uh, in the primaries of the DPP in uh, June 2019. What happened then is very interesting. Of course, we all know what happened in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, the students went on to the streets to protest against the extradition law that the government, the local government in Hong Kong proposed that would enable extradition of people from Hong Kong to China. And that was really not to the liking of many young people in particular, who felt it was a violation of the one country, two systems concept that had been imposed uh, on Hong Kong. And what happened in Hong Kong then really was a mirror for the people in Taiwan of what would happen if at some point in time they would get too close to China. Uh, Hong Kong is, of course, under the control of China. And that really uh, was a very good example for people in Taiwan uh, to, to see, hey, that's not really what we want. And Tsai Ing-wen was very able to uh, capitalize on that. She su was supportive of the student demonstrations in Hong Kong, saying, hey, those people are fighting for their democracy, for their human rights, and that's a just cause and the police and the government in Hong Kong was being pretty darn repressive 
at the instigation of Beijing, of course, behind the scenes. So all of that eventually led to a tremendous comeback for Tsai Ing-wen in October, November, December already. Her opinion polls had far outstripped those of the opposition candidate from the Kuomintang, Mr. Han Guoyu. And Mr. Han had started very high in the uh, opinion polls, but gradually went down and down and down because of his personal rather uh, objectable behavior. And also because he really didn't show he was master of any of the issues that were on the table, relations with China, relations with Hong Kong, how Taiwan should behave itself internationally. He was really showing that he was not really up to the task of being a president of Taiwan. So after uh, July, August, um, Tsai Ing-wen got more and more of an upper hand and that resulted eventually in her very momentous victory uh, on January 11th, where she got uh, more votes than she had gotten in 2016, her first uh, round in the election. That's really quite amazing because almost always uh, presidents who run for re-election kind of get criticized uh, for things they did or did not do in their first term. And uh, But she was able to gain more votes than, uh, than in 2016. What is also quite amazing is that the legislative yuan still has a majority of the DPP. Uh, even two, three months ago, people were predicting that the DPP would lose pretty badly in the legislative yuan and uh, probably not maintain a majority of 57 seats. But that didn't happen, partially because Tsai Ing-wen really got the whole DPP uh, system going in support of uh, local legislators. And uh, on the other side of the aisle, the Kuomintang basically did not do a very good job in the elections. So that eventually resulted in a legislative yuan with 61 seats out of 113, which is a good majority. And the DPP can also count on the number of these smaller parties that are uh, green, as we say in Taiwan, and even more progressive on a number of issues than the DPP itself is. So the DPP and its allies in the LY can count on pretty close to 70 seats out of 113. So this means uh, that Taiwan will be able to move forward and Tsai Ing-wen will be able to move forward with the reforms she started in her first term. Uh, one other thing before um, I go to what we can expect for the future is that this election showed the international community uh, very clearly that Tsai Ing-wen uh, has a very clear mandate of the people in Taiwan, 57% of the vote against 38 for Mr. Han Huoyu. That is really a almost 20% difference and that is this landslide majority. So it has shown the international community that it is possible for a small country like Taiwan 
to push back against Beijing, against the threats and intimidation that Beijing has been engaged in um, over the past few years, uh, very much since Tsai Ing-wen started her presidency. They have uh, used all kind of measures, carrots and sticks, to try to push her into a corner. But her election does show to the United States, to the countries in Europe, that, hey, Tsai Ing-wen is somebody very special who has found a method of pushing back against Beijing uh, without being too abrasive. You know, she has stretched out her hand uh, towards Beijing and say, hey, we can talk, we can um, discuss issues, but we do not want to have preconditions like the uh, one country, two systems idea that China has been pushing or the so-called 92 consensus, which the Kuomintang had agreed to uh, with Beijing uh, when Ma Ying-jeou started his presidency. So this has really caught the attention of many major newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, Financial Times uh, in London, uh, Wall Street Journal, all had major articles about the elections. And I think this is really a first in history. I remember in many of the previous elections, uh, we would get one or two articles in any of the uh, major newspapers, and then we would consider ourselves lucky. But now each of those papers have had major editorials like the Washington Post um, uh, with one column by George Will saying, time is on Taiwan's side. And I think that's also very encouraging for President Tsai and for um, the people of Taiwan who have worked so hard for their democracy and are sticking their head out for democracy. Mm -hmm. So this is my first part of the analysis of the elections. Any further questions on that? Yeah, no, I was actually just curious um, in terms of uh, what happened in 2018 that made her approval so low and um, besides what you mentioned, uh, how that turned around. Uh, she initiated when she came to power in 2016, uh, she initiated a number of reforms. Um, one is uh, pension reform in the under the old system set up by the Kuomintang, uh, pensioners from government positions like teachers and military people, they got 18% interest on their savings account paid for by the government, which was a totally untenable system, which was draining the coffers of the government. And she had vowed to end that. Um, she initiated that and, of course, got a rather rough response from teachers, from uh, people in the military. And they started to uh, be energized and have rather large-scale demonstrations. So that was part of the resistance against that particular reform, the uh, pension reform. On the other side, she promised uh, also reforms, for instance, in terms of the uh, transitional justice issue that the Kuomintang should come clean, should make up for um, all the wrongdoings done under the martial law uh, period. Mm -hmm. 
and that moved rather slowly. Um, the system was pretty resistant against that. And many of her supporters who had voted for her felt, hey, she is not going far enough, not going fast enough. So in 2018, what you had is that people who had been her supporters stayed home and people who had opposed her were energized because they were opposed to those, uh, to those uh, reforms. So what happened after 2018 November is that she was able to get a number of those people who had supported her back uh, to her side and said, hey, if we don't uh, stick together now, then it is likely that the Kuomintang would win in the 2011 elections. And that would be pretty disastrous for Taiwan because then it would close, move closer to China again. So she was able to energize her base. She was able to energize in particularly also the young people. Uh, I haven't seen the total, uh, sorry, the split up of turnout for different age groups yet. But the average turnout for this election was 74.9%. That means that young people uh, probably turned out at the percentage of over 80%. That's just incredible, you know. Yeah, yeah. Four out of five young people turned out to vote. And that is hardly seen anywhere in the world. If you look at US elections, you know, the right. turnout is 30, 35% maybe. In Europe, we may get 40%, but that's about it. But the turnout of 74.9% is in itself a major achievement for Taiwan. Right, right. Well, thank you for that very clear explanation. Okay, then how we uh, go uh, further. Because she has a mandate now, she can continue uh, more vigorously, I would suggest, on a number of the reforms she started in her first term. I mentioned already uh, transitional justice reform, that there's a lot more information that needs to come out of the security agencies, the police, the military, about what happened um, in 228 in 1947, mm -hmm. in the Kaohsiung incident in 1979, uh, with the political murders that occurred in the early 1980s, Lin Yixiong's family murder, the murder of Professor Chen Wenzhen at Taida. Um, information on that is still uh, considered secret and cannot be released, but it is essential if there is to be closure um, in Taiwan over the past that the Kuomintang comes clean of that, that they admit, hey, we were wrong in doing that. Uh, just like in uh, South Africa, they had the truth and reconciliation effort where uh, the truth had to be brought out and then it was possible for the two sides in South Africa, the blacks and the whites, to come to reconciliation. So in the same way, it is essential that in Taiwan, the Kuomintang stops denying uh, the wrong things that they did and that they were involved in in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even until the early 90s. 
and that um, once they acknowledge that, then there can be a much better base for moving forward together in Taiwan as Taiwanese people. So truth and reconciliation, transitional justice is one major issue. Another important issue is the economy. Tsai Ing-wen did a lot to, on the one hand, bring back many businesses and companies that had invested in China, bring them back to Taiwan so they can reinvest in Taiwan, give job opportunities to young people in Taiwan. She has also started the uh, new Go South policy where Taiwan tries to uh, have more and closer ties with countries in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, and so on. And that is important because those are major actors in the region. And for Taiwan to get more international space, it is essential to have better relations with those countries. So those countries can have Taiwan on their political radar screen and also at all levels, uh, economic, industrial, uh, academic uh, levels, uh, get to know each other and work, uh, work together. So that whole realm of economic ties, um, strengthening Taiwan's technological and economic base and have better ties with Southeast Asia is important. And at the same time also, of course, with the United States, uh, some people are talking about a uh, uh, free trade agreement with the U.S. President Tsai Ing-wen has mentioned that herself. Um, I think that is possible, but with the current American administration, it's probably pretty darn difficult to, to get a, uh, a fair free trade agreement um, because uh, Mr. Trump is so self-centered and uh, not very eager to 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 have a uh, real balanced fair trade agreement but mm -hmm. european countries also see taiwan more and more as an important partner partner economically and technologically um, so i think it's also important to gradually enhance relations with with european countries uh, for taiwan Taiwan has uh, some very good representatives in Brussels, in uh, Berlin, uh, in the Netherlands. So I have uh, good faith that those people will be able to lift Taiwan up to a higher level in terms of relations uh, with Europe. Um, on the defense side, uh, Tsai Ing-wen has made a number of pretty in good moves already which were successful in her first term uh, getting the f-16 sale through uh, the united states is an important one to enhance taiwan's uh, defense against uh, china uh, but she has also started a longer term initiative the uh, indigenous uh, uh, defense system primarily focused on uh, one um, how do you call it, the uh, training aircraft, uh, mm -hmm. making those uh, uh, ourselves in Taiwan 
and secondly, the indigenous submarine. Those are longer-term efforts, but if she, she has four more years now, she can really move forward uh, on those. So overall, that will enhance uh, Taiwan's defense structure. There are always people who feel we should go more towards a so-called asymmetric defense option. Um, I think Taiwan should indeed look at the possibilities there, but uh, not go too far and too fast uh, in that direction. That's a whole separate discussion that one can, can have on, on that aspect. Um, so I think that's in terms of uh, various policies, uh, important one. The one that is, of course, most important in terms of the international um, uh, scene is how China will react and how Taiwan will uh, be able to respond to, to China's reactions. Um, most people that I've talked to basically say uh, that China will continue with the carrot and stick approach that they have uh, used until now. On the one hand, try to have incentives for Taiwan industries and young people to work in China. But on the other hand, have a stick approach where they uh, try to steal more uh, international allies from Taiwan. Taiwan has only 15 diplomatic allies now. And also uh, have military incursions in the area around Taiwan. So that is the general sense of the situation. And I think Taiwan is pretty well positioned to respond to that with the new mandate that she has. Any intensification of China's efforts to grab Taiwan will be met with a lot more resistance from the international community, from the US, from Europe, because the international community has seen that she has a strong mandate from the people in Taiwan. I think that's an important element here. Mm -hmm. One would of course hope that uh, China would be, be more accommodating to Taiwan, uh, reach out to Taiwan, have not these uh, measures to limit Taiwan's international space or to push Taiwan into a corner. Um, I think many people that I've talked to basically don't have much hope that that might happen, but that would really be the best approach for Beijing to follow. Mr. Xi Jinping basically has seen that his current approach is not working. I mean, that's the headline that you see in the Washington Post, in the Wall Street Journal, and so on and so forth. And um, if he would be wise, then he would uh, tone down the rhetoric against uh, Taiwan. But it is very doubtful that that will happen. So I think that is, in a nutshell, my perspective for what might happen for the future. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, I, I'm just curious, um, in terms of um, attracting the business um, from China back to Taiwan, what did Taiwan do um, to make that happen? 
Well, um, one big driver was, of course, the fact that the U.S. and China got into a trade war with uh, the United States imposing tariffs on products from China. So Taiwanese companies that had been involved in producing things in China basically felt, hey, if we stay here in China, then our products will not be able to find the markets uh, because there are these higher tariffs from the United States. So a number of them decided to shift production uh, to Taiwan for uh, various products, I think, uh, from 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 uh, electronic gear uh, to bicycles. I know uh, the giant uh, company which produced both bicycles in China as well as in Taiwan closed several of their China factories and uh, and moved the production uh, to Taiwan, and that happened. Uh, across a range of uh, industries. Mm -hmm. And what President Tsai did is that she made it attractive for those companies to relocate to Taiwan or expand their operations uh, in Taiwan. There were a number of incentives given by the Tsai administration uh, to do so. So that helped those companies made a shift. I don't recall the precise number. I saw a number of uh, uh, companies and uh, amounts of, of dollars that were relocated back to Taiwan. Um, a number of companies also diverted their production to other places in Southeast Asia, uh, particularly Vietnam has been a beneficiary and uh, India. But uh, what President Tsai did with getting them back to Taiwan was pretty important and that also led to the significant growth of the economy in Taiwan. And over the past two years you have seen a very significant uptick of uh, annual growth figures for Taiwan. So that is also the result of that, uh, that effort. Great, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm curious to know what you think or if you've seen any indications of how um, the results of the election and um, the uh, work on the truth and reconciliation in terms of making the Kuomintang accountable for a lot of the things that happened during the um, white terror era. How do you think that's impacting the Kuomintang? Um, well, the Kuomintang has, at this point, uh, other worries. You know, they were defeated pretty badly, and I am uh, pretty sure that there is quite a um, uh, debate going on internally within the Kuomintang. How do we move further? And there will be quite a considerable competition for who will be the chairman of the of the Kuomintang. What the past the recent election showed is that uh, by far not all major figures within the Kuomintang uh, felt happy about Mr. Han Kuo-yu. Mr. Han Kuo-yu, of course, kind of parachuted in and uh, he was never really a key member of the core leadership of the Kuomintang, but he uh, just came in last year as mayor of uh, Kaohsiung 
and uh, and then made his run for the presidency, which was pretty disastrous. So there will be quite a bit of competition within the Kuomintang on uh, who will succeed Mr. Wudoni. Um, I don't know how that will go, and that will take some time. So that's their first concern. But I think uh, some of the younger and more moderate uh, people in the Kuomintang might be open to, uh, let's say, more of a positive and constructive participation in the truth and reconciliation process. Until now, we have had leaders who basically did not want to have anything to do with it. And um, the leadership of the Kuomintang basically only kicked back and said, no, we did never do anything wrong. And uh, this is just a, a political campaign by the DPP, etc., etc." But some of the younger people might be more interested in in uh, in participating it in in a positive way. So let's hope that happens. I, I don't have any any feeling of of how that would go, but uh, it is certainly something that that would be good if, for the longer term, we would have a more stable and less divisive political system in Taiwan. It has been so divisive because of these different strains from the past. On the one hand, the Kuomintang strain uh, that basically considered itself superior and had been uh, ruling Taiwan for 50-some years. And on the other hand, the native Taiwanese uh, stream that basically said, hey, we uh, we have never really been part of China. Why should we? Uh, why should we be more accommodating to Beijing? We want to have a uh, fair and just society, and for that fair and just society, it is essential to come clean of the past. So that is, I think, part of the equation that we will see in the in the near future. Great. Um, is there anything else you wanted to share in terms of your um, perspective uh, of the outcome of the elections? No, I think we've basically covered okay. uh, all angles in terms of the elections and what can we expect for the future. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we can talk a bit about the past now, about Taiwan Communicate. I've been speaking with Garrett Vanderweese about his perspectives on the outcome of the 2020 presidential election in Taiwan and what the future might hold with the re-election of President Tsai Ing-wen and a DPP majority parliament. Stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Taiwan when I continue speaking with Garrett about the Taiwan Communique, a publication dedicated to the promotion of Taiwan's human rights and democracy that was started during Taiwan's martial law era. Remarkably, it survived for over 30 years through the white terror era. That's coming up on the next episode of Talking Taiwan. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.